Welcome to the Kira Feeling Podcast. My guest this week is Declan Buckley, presenter of Telly Bingo, which he has hosted three times a week on RTE since 2001. You may also know Declan as Shirley Temple Bar, host of one of Ireland's longest running live shows at the George in Dublin. He speaks to me about growing up with two deaf parents, the loss of his brother, his sexuality and his career. Declan, how would you best describe yourself? <laughs> oh, you're straight into it. You know, that's one of the questions I hate the most um, because like, I know who I am. I mean, you know, as much as anybody knows who they are, but I do kind of weird jobs. So because my jobs are strange and, and, and often quite different, um, and, and also I don't feel they encompass me. I hate this question. So, okay, so I'm probably best known from being on Telly Bingo as a, uh, a TV presenter. Um, I also uh, perform as Shirley Temple Bar um, in The George, which I've been doing for many years. I hosted a bingo show there as well. Um, I sometimes appear on radio and uh, um, on other TV programmes and in print media. And if I'm very lucky, I get to be on podcasts too. So yeah, I'm a little bit of an all-round media spread. And and behind all of that, though, I know you said you hated this question, but I'm going to stay going. Behind all of that. <laughs> Who am I? Um, at, at the moment, at the stage of my life, I'm also, I'm also a husband. Um, I'm also uh, the son of two ageing parents um, in whose lives I seem to be increasingly involved in, you know, the minutia of every detail of their lives, which I'm not complaining about, but it can be a bit mundane. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> Um, I'm also, um, you know, you know, I'm a friend, I'm a lover, I'm a brother, whatever. I'm all those things. Okay. <laughs> so tell me, um, how did your upbringing impact the person that you are today? I know you have a really interesting story about, you know, your family life. A lot of people may not know this about you, but uh, both your parents are deaf. So what was that like for you growing up? Well, yeah, I mean, it's... it's for me, it's always amusing to, to be have my childhood described as interesting or as different because when I was a child, I didn't realise until a certain point that it was different. Um, my, both my parents are deaf. I would have been their baby and they would have been my parents and I wouldn't have considered anything else until I got to a stage in my life where I was with other kids and you do the kind of comparing, my dad's a builder, your dad's, you know, my mum's a teacher, whatever it is. Um, and at that point in my kind of development, I would have realised, OK, my situation is completely different. But growing up with, with deaf parents, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the central thing in, in your relationship is communication. Most children who are, have deaf parents um, will either use sign language or some kind of form of, of, of lip reading and, and kind of clear speaking to communicate. Um, that just depends on the way that the deaf person has been educated. Nowadays, it's a, it's much more likely that would be kind of a mix of both of those things. But when my parents were younger, and most deaf kids were were kind of shunted off to be kind of just taught some sign language and maybe a trade. Like my dad went to the boys' school, so they were a little bit behind in the development of, of what they were doing when my dad was there. So he kind of learned the old system where that that was what happened to him. He was given a trade. He was a tailor for you know a big chunk of his life. And um, other of his classmates might have been taught to be shoemakers or carpenters or that kind of thing. So it was very much a trade get them something that they can kind of survive on for the rest of their lives. Whereas my, when my mother started in school, well, her, her mum was also a school teacher. So she kind of wanted education from my mum. So she sent my mum off to a special school where they were developing the idea of teaching children how to lip read and to, to speak. So like, like the way that a speech therapist would work through 
the, the formation of each individual letters. And it's a very technical way to learn language, not the way that a hearing child would. But my mum was basically taught to speak in that in that way. So um, the idea, I guess, was so that she could integrate with with hearing society. And it was very successful for her. I mean, she went on through the education system um, because she was shown to be able to do that. She went off to university in the end. So, um, you know, I don't know how I ended up in this part of the conversation, but the, the my mum being a school teacher was the end result of that. And because of that, um, she and my dad had a big um, interest in, in our education as well, most of my brothers. So, so I've always been kind of like, not just the child of a deaf, and also, also the child of, of a school teacher as well. And so my mum was kind of down on us to kind of, you know, be informed and educated and read books and that kind of stuff. Would, was there any element of you feeling that uh, to get involved in activism because of the situation at home? Actually, interestingly, um, both of my parents uh, became early activists for the deaf community. Um, Back when they were children, I kind of described the way the education system was a little bit kind of paternalistic. Um, and also the world at large, if you kind of think back, we're talking about the kind of 60s and the 70s and the 80s. My parents had, had because my mum went to university in the United States, um, we were living in the States, I was born there. Um, they kind of obviously saw what was happening with the kind of civil rights agenda there. They came back to Ireland and with other deaf people. Um, in the end of the 70s, they started up a kind of a... Um, activism group the deaf activism group i can't remember what it was called but it, that morphed into what's now called the ids the irish deaf society which is the biggest kind of deaf run um organization for deaf people in, in the country and um, so so they would have been activists i would have seen that and it, it, I, i've actually noted the kind of parallels between my life and and their life in that respect how they would have been people who were who would have been fighting for their own rights and, and their place in society as a marginalised group. And then me, as, as a gay person, I kind of lived through and was part of, you know, and continue to be part of a kind of a, a struggle to, to, you know, to, to, to get our rights as well, to, you know, to have our place in, in the world kind of respected. And, and, and interestingly as well, around the same time, the, the, the deaf society and the, the deaf groups managed to convince the Erectus to, to make Irish Sign Language an official language in Ireland. That happened around the, the same time as, as marriage equality. And in a way, it has a similar kind of a um, significance to, to both of the kind of the, 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 the agenda of both of those groups as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You mentioned there that obviously um, you're a gay man, but when you were growing up, um, it's a question I ask a lot of my guests, do you have difficulty in discovering your identity in this world? Was that difficult for you? And I suppose, can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, coming out to your parents then? Because obviously you, I'm assuming you're doing, you did it via sign language. Yeah, so um, there's a lot in there. I suppose, you know, anybody, you know, do, do you know what your identity is? For most people, and it's, good, it's a really interesting thing. I was thinking about this only yesterday in terms of a completely different issue, how... People who've never had to consider their kind of um their their privilege or their lack thereof, um, 
don't tend to consider their identity in the way that somebody who very much recognises that they're part of a marginalised group. Now, I'm saying this, you know, every woman that's listened to this is going, what about women? Of course, uh, yeah, well, I, I know women are aware of their their their, their role and, and their um, oppression, whatever you want to say. But obviously, you know, when you get into smaller mar- minority groups and if disability is considered there as well, it's kind of an interesting thing, identity. What does it mean? For me, my identity was always, you know, I was a kid, so, that, you know, and then I was in my family and then I was in school and I was, you know, from Blanchardstown. I went to school in the Navan Road. Um, for, it wasn't probably until I was in my teens that I realised that the little element of me that I already knew about that was different um, from the other lads. I wasn't interested in sport and I didn't want to fight and all that kind of stuff. Um, that, that developed into a more kind of, okay, this is about my sexual orientation as well. So, um, But I didn't really come out or kind of... I suppose, uh, come to terms with that. That sounds more dramatic than I mean. But I didn't really kind of put a name on that until after I left school. Um, I didn't come out properly until I was in university. And that would have been at the tail end of the 1980s. Context, that's the 1980s when HIV and AIDS was kind of the big pandemic. And there was, you know, it was quite an aggressive um, ad campaign on the television every day kind of telling you don't have sex it's going to murder you so for, for a gay person as well it was particularly kind of um, harrowing and traumatic um, so I was very reluctant and, and uh, you know a bit kind of tentative about any kind of exploration in that sphere which also as well kind of retarded any any kind of ability I had to kind of tell the world oh I'm gay because it was you know all that was going on so um, it made life definitely a lot more difficult than I would hope it is for young people now. Um, when I when I actually did get to the stage of kind of speaking to people, it was my parents I told first. It was, it was my friends, um, and indeed this is a terrible thing to admit, but it, there were some friends I just didn't tell. I kind of just ghosted and I just moved, you know, went into a live in a whole new world. Coincidentally, by the way, that that was only possible because I'd moved away to London at the time. So. Um, and then um, when I came back from London, you know, I told my parents, my mum kind of had already known and was just a little bit um, unsure whether, you know, my life kind of was going to be a happy one. So there was that kind of, you know, this again was, you know, the, the very early 90s. Um, I told, again, my communication with my mum is, is, was be verbal. I talked to my mum and I assigned to my dad. Um, that obviously sometimes means that speaking and communicating with your, you know, with words feels more natural to a, to a hearing person. So that always feels a little bit less planned. When you're signing, it sometimes can be like, I have to think about what it is I'm going to say and what way it is, because you're very aware that you're actually now speaking in the language of another person so that they can actually understand. So it becomes more about them. So it's kind of a facilitating kind of exercise. Um, anyway, so yeah, so by the time I came out, it was, I was in my 20s maybe or very early 20s um maybe a little bit earlier than that um but then once that was done that was kind of like you know that was my family done that was my friends done I, I was kind of securing who I was but you never really stop coming out there's always somebody who you have to kind of say even at the beginning of this conversation even though I know you know in order for me to say certain things or to you know talk about certain issues I have to kind of you know bring it up it has to be you know a declaration just to kind of you know, clarify, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I have this particular attitude about X, Y, and Z. It's because I'm a gay person. Mm. And I suppose, do you do you find you tend to do that in a lot of situations and in life, 
in if you're having conversations that you're meeting people um i don't know if you're at a dinner at a wedding something like that do you feel one of the best things about be, being me uniquely me is it was you know in the 1990s when i decided to come back from like i had a proper real job career after college i studied in dcu went off to, to london i was working in advertising there then i changed jobs whatever i decided i didn't like london because it was too kind of frantic and and i missed home so i came home but i wasn't sure what i wanted to do i did a little bit of temping you know oh, i'll get a real job and then on one day out in dublin on the gay scene um my friends, mainly Rory Panty Bliss and Brandon, Brandon Courtney. Brandon was one of my earliest gay friends. Um, they convinced me to do this thing that they'd seen the year before. Well, Rory runs it, actually, the Alternative Miss Ireland. I didn't know what it was. It was this competition. It's, you know, in, in a nutshell, basically, it's a, it's a pastiche. It's kind of a, 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 a poking fun at the idea of beauty pageants. So, you know, it's, and it's a, it's a fundraiser for HIV charities as well. I'm saying is, but it was. We haven't had one for many years now. Um, and it ran from like the, you know, the 1980s all the way up into the 2000s. And it was around the St. Patrick's Day weekend. And it became this really big thing. But the year I did it in 1997, um, it was the second year that they'd done it. In, in You know, and I had no idea what it was, but I said, oh, I'll do it, whatever. They kind of pushed me on. I, I'm easy to, to convince to do stuff. So I said, okay, what, what, what harm could it do? Little did I know that it would end up, you know, that I would win as Shirley Temple Bar, that afterwards I'd be offered another gig the next week and then the week after and then the week after. I, I was thinking, wow, this is a really easy way to make, you know, money. And I was making a bit of cash here and there for doing practically nothing. And then um, the George offered me a gig and that's 27 years ago. And, um, you know, so my point in bringing that up is because I did that and then subsequently that led to television work where I'm basically on television as the gay that does telly bingo. I don't tend to have to come out as much as, as, as some people do. So for that reason alone, you know, that, you know, vindicates my life choice in many ways. <laughs> it saves a lot of nonsense. Can I ask you, um, has Shirley Temple Bar brought you attention that you may not have wanted absolutely yeah and my, my, most of the people that work with me know that there's an element in me that despite you know I, I'm able to front up being an extrovert but I'm actually not I'm actually quite a shy person who who for various reasons and you know, we already alluded to some of them we talked about my parents being deaf as well I think a lot of that the performative side of that is you know I've had to do stuff for my parents communicate on behalf of my parents since I was a very little kid which meant standing up in front of a room, even though I hated it, doing it. As opposed to, you know, we all know the kid from down the road or your your niece or your nephew who speech and drama is their way into every moment of their life. They just love it. They just want to sing and dance and be the centre. That wasn't me. Although I do, as it turns out, have a bit of a flair for a high kick and a box step. But I didn't know that. I'd never done any drama. I'd never done anything before. I, I was on stage for the first time. As, but I'd maybe done, you know, you know, a little bit of speech and drama when I was a very young kid because my, my parents, when we came back from the United States, were told by snobby colleagues that my brother and I were losing our lovely American accent and we were developing Dublin accents. So that, you know, so my mum, you know, didn't know. She's dead. She didn't know. Is that a bad or a good thing? We send them to elocution classes, which my older brother and I hated. So we used to go on the bunk. We used to not go there. <laughs> so, yeah. So we were, I was never really interested in, 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 in that side of thing until I was there and doing it. So, um, yeah, I don't know how, how I started talking about that, but yes, I'm 
but the attention that it brought it brought to you though Declan is like has there been moments where you thought back like I, I can't imagine the opportunities that it has brought for you but has there been moments in your life where you thought are you on a day that you said oh I wish this never happened because you know and, and we were talking about earlier on about you know who, who are who are you and you were trying to describe ways of of of, of I was trying to describe ways of describing myself. And I think anybody, everybody has the right to kind of slightly modify who they are, whether it's what they're wearing or what their political views are or, you know, by education or by learning a new hobby or whatever. People are on, are on these journeys. Um, when you become known for a particular thing, it's, quite, it's kind of limiting in the way people see you and the opportunities that you can get. So yes, of course, by doing drag and, and also even by being on the television, I get opportunities, I get asked to, to contribute, even stuff like this that I probably would never be asked to do, um, which, is, which is great and, and it's a platform and I respect that. But there are also other parts of me, interests that I have that, that don't relate to that. Like, you know, when, during that time, you know, I, I went off to study a master's in, 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 in college while I was on the television and while I was doing Shirley Temple Bar that had nothing to do with my career, just purely because I needed to, 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 to grasp back a space within my brain, within my life. For me, that isn't to do with a kind of a public persona because like it, thankfully and, and also slightly engineered, is my profile is quite low because I, I can't really handle the attention. I don't want that kind of, I don't want to be up in front of people because when I was much younger, I found it very hard. I found it very hard to have people kind of at me and also my friends around me didn't enjoy that, you know, <laughs> people would come over to talk to me and there'd be like this kind of low-key nonsense conversation happening for 20 minutes while they just wanted to have a night out. And I was like, I get that. And I, I, you know, so from my point of view, I kind of go, look, I am not chasing a dream. I'm not, I'm, I'm a bit old now to be kind of wanting to become famous or anything like that. But I'm, I'm also lucky enough that I've had enough of an experience of the limelight and attention and opportunities to know what's worth kind of chasing after and what's worth kind of maybe taking a seat for. And that's part of the adventure. Tell us what you did your master's in then. What were, what's the other aspects that you're really interested in? Digital media technology. So basically it's kind of like using um, computers to make audio, video and, um, you know, internet based stuff. You're laughing. <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> That's why I have this lovely microphone that you can see here. <laughs> um, <laughs> very, very, very interesting. It's very relevant in today's well, age. Actually, actually, yeah, really. yeah, but I, I did actually do, I did it a long time ago. Like that was like in the, in the early 2000s and it was basically what it was. I wanted to, to learn how to, to do something. I wanted to do uh, video compos- compositing. I wanted to, you know, just for, just for the laugh. I mean, I know I'm never going to make a film, but I just wanted to learn how to do that. I was interested in how that works. My dad was always really interested in photography when I was a kid. So it was that kind of thing that I just wanted to, I just wanted to have a kind of a side hobby. But the only way for me to learn about it was inside this thing was teaching me about HTML and, you know, stuff I didn't really care about. But, you know, I went along and I did it anyway. And it was, it was really, really interesting. Tell me, what was the reaction like when Shirley Temple Bar began presenting Telly Bingo? There's a kind of an urban myth that, you know, the RTE switchboard was kind of rung off the thing with people being, you know, not very happy about it. But I don't, I mean, you know, I don't believe that. But I do believe that there were complaints. I believe that there's always going to be complaints. I mean, there's still probably complaints. Um, but yeah, so 
what happened there really was that the, the National Lottery, uh, were, who were the main producers of the Telebingo programme, had had the Telebingo programme on at a different time slot. And they were changing the time slot and the presenters were changing. So they were looking for a new presenter to, to come in and do the, the new shorter version of, of Telebingo during the daytime. And the managing director at the time of the National Lottery, his daughter had been at my show in the George the night before. So at the breakfast table on the day that he's going in to have this meeting about some ideas for this presenter, my name came up in the conversation. So they came to, to, to ask me to do it. Around the same time, I had been kind of talking to people in RTE about doing kind of late night, wouldn't it be great, you know, to have, you know, a drag queen, you know, wouldn't that be kind of radical? And they were like, oh, maybe not, it's a bit much for Ireland. So then to have the National Lottery, like, you know, like a, an established brand to come in and say, we want to front and centre, like, a, a, you know, an LGBT person as the kind of the main face, not only of our brand, but on a TV programme, that's on Irish television, on the, you know, the main national channel, right after the programme that's aimed at, you know, our oldest demographic. You know, this was, would have been after, like, Live at Three or after the afternoon, you know, magazine programme. Well, for me, it was like a no-brainer. I had to do it. I didn't particularly think it was a great idea for my career, but I did think this is actually a really good platform to just be there, you know? So I didn't think it would last very long. I, I honestly thought it would be, you know, like a season, like it would be a, a year, maybe max. Um, and then it became two years and it became three years. And in the third year, I, I was finding it very draining because um, I already mentioned earlier on about, you know, just certain aspects of being out and, in, you know, and being a face in the public. I, I don't really like that. But also drag is a drag. It's called drag because it's a drag. It takes hours to put the makeup on your face. And you don't even get it right then. And then you have to go and do a thing and then you have to come back and take it all off again. And sometimes that's even worse. If you ever, you know, waterproof mascara, I'll say that to everybody. And then you go, okay, I know what you mean. That stuff is a nightmare. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to take off your face. So I was in this situation for, where for like a 20 minute, 15 minute, 20 minute program, three times a week, I was getting into drag for hours beforehand and then having to try to take this stuff afterwards. And it was just, I was just getting like, this is just, it's just not working for me. I'm just getting to the point where, you know, and also the, the, the whole gag, the whole kind of impact of me being there had kind of waned as well. Because, you know, I wasn't given an opportunity to, to kind of be a drag queen, to kind of, you know, be kind of cheeky. And the program is too short. It was literally just get to the business of the program and move on, have a little conversation with somebody. Yeah. And that was always my favorite part. It still is my favorite part is when I get to talk to, to people. Um, they... The, the the drag part became a drag and I was kind of feeling it was coming to to an end but when they asked me to just do it kind of as yourself um like I, I thought that was also kind of a an interesting thing to do I didn't know if that would work but I also thought as a kind of a statement kind of this is this is the person behind the drag and you know it's was, it was kind of an, for me it felt like a kind of a like the, the, the correct ending of whatever I was doing there so yeah so I did it and I'm still doing it and you're still doing it. God, it's like how many years are you doing it now? It's like, is it's it still over. It's 22, 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh my 22 God. years. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you spoke briefly there about, you know, you know, coming out as gay and everything that comes with that as well. Did you have to deal with a lot of discrimination because of your sexual orientation? 
and has the abuse I suppose changed over the years because I'm obviously thinking about um you know you mentioned was there a, if there had been a few complaints into the switchboard um you I don't know if you were made aware about those how you dealt with it at the time but speak to me a little bit about that okay so um in, specifically in terms of the 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 tele bingo thing they RTE would have a very stringent way of managing the, that thing so I would have been protected from the the worst part of any you know you know nonsense um but they'd also would have to record stuff so sometimes people crew members or other people would actually check the logbook and then the logbook might become the topic of kind of you know whispers and gossip or whatever and then that's kind of how these kind of rumors start you know so maybe one particularly nasty comment might become like hours and hours of you know you know and so I always took it with a bit of a a bit of a um you know a pinch of salt because Allegedly, the same thing happened the day that Shirley Temple Bar stopped doing drag. So there was complaints. Why did you take Shirley off the air? You know, oh, is it, you know, do they make you stop dressing like that? It was kind of like some of the stuff that people were allegedly saying. <laughs> so whatever. That's, so anyway, so the orgy thing was, was, it was handled professionally and it was at you know, arm's length. Other forms of discrimination, sadly, are not that, you know, re- removed. When I was younger... There would have been the kind of, you know, your everyday casual homophobia that would possibly extend to the odd punch in the face in the street, which, you know, has happened to me and to most most gay people will talk about stuff that's like that that's happened to them. And thankfully, that kind of stuff stopped happening for a while. Um, Again, just for reference, when I when I was a student and I talked about coming out at that point, if I was being gay, um, I was being a criminal according to the laws that were, uh, you know, it wasn't until 1993, which is after I'm talking about that, that that law was taken off the books. Um, now, you know, the Gardaí weren't particularly chasing after gay people at that particular point, but that's kind of hardly the point. You know, w- when you know that there's a law that could be enacted against you, that's that's a form of kind of quiet um, oppression regardless. Um, so obviously over over the years we've had many progresses and and many advancements in in our kind of um in the equalization of our status in society however like this definitely feels to me that there's a kind of a little bit of a like a, a backslide i think often what happens when people see other people advancing and they're not advancing more ahead you know people can get enraged loads of economic reasons why the happiness of the you know the the marriage equality referendum now, you know, seem distant because people are just a bit annoyed and people are a bit fed up. COVID obviously had a lot to do with people's attitudes. Um, I think right now, I think that if you're an LGBT person and you're online and you're reading, particularly if you're reading anything on what Elon Musk has done to Twitter, it's, it's a nasty space. It's a space full of hate. It's a space full of negative um, kind of reactionary attitudes. But it's also some of that, you know, completely makes you feel when you when you come off it, you feel particularly not not just the normal horrible you feel after using social media. You feel horrible because you've been personally attacked. Um, and so I, I, that's all very sad. And I think, you know, we are as a community, we're kind of very conscious of that. That's what, you know, gay pride that just happened in Dublin a couple of weeks back there. Um, or maybe longer. Um, was um, was a really spiritual, and I'm, I'm not joking when I say spiritual, it was a really spiritual experience for so many people because because it was real. We're in the real world. We're not like just listening to like bots and, uh, you know, a, a curated 
algorithm version of the world where hate gets to get boosted and, and homophobia gets a little kind of boost up the ladder. We're actually in the real world where we could see the people of Dublin. We're walking through. There were so many of us and, and people with us making it. And the sun, of course, so that meant obviously nature was on our side too. The whole experience was amazing. And, um, and it was really, I think it was a real injection into our arms to go, things are actually good. Things are actually good. You know, we have this and it's fine. And we're, you know, we're not, it's not as bad as media can sometimes make us feel it is. Um, just to go back there, you were physically assaulted once. <laughs> yeah, once. Has it been multiple times? I mean, well, no, I mean, I was, I have been punched in the face because, you know, because people sometimes think that they want to punch a gay person in the face. Um, that's, that's commonplace. I mean, I think that what always surprises me is that people don't realise that if there is negative language in, you know, the, the, the landscape of the media or bad representations on television, that eventually will trickle down into some form of a violent act somewhere on the streets somewhere. Now, I had, this happened to me a lot, many, many, many years ago. Um, and again, you know, I, I wasn't badly hurt, but I have friends who have been punched in the face and, you know, have required medical attention. And, um, you know, and, and I also have, I know people, there are, I have acquaintances or I have friends of friends or even, you know, distant kind of um, members of the, the, the community who've been really badly injured by people um, and purely just because of their, their, their sexual orientation. Um, or gender identity. Were you just walking down the street, or were you in a setting, or how did it Actually, come about? Actually, with a, a group of our, a group of friends, and we were having a conversation, and I, and one person started talking to. There were two other people, and they were chatting away, and it was a bit of a kind of a joking moment. I think maybe there was a bit of an altercation on one end of the thing, and the other mate decided the other one of the lads decided to punch the nearest gay to him, and they all ran, of course, because bravery, you know, means you punch and run. So we ran after them and they probably shoot themselves because they thought the gays were going to kill them. <laughs> no, no. And again, as I said, I wasn't particularly hurt, but I mean, that's, I, I don't want to trivialise these kind of things. But most of the time, the story is actually kind of irrelevant because most of the time it's, it's a non-entity. It's a, you know, I was walking down the street and somebody thought it would be funny to punch me. I mean, this stuff happens in Dublin, particularly after, you know, after the club or whatever. That kind of stuff happens a lot. So. Yeah, well, look, we ha- there has been an increase. Um, You know, man- yeah. many members of the LGBTQ plus community would say that post-COVID particularly, that they have seen this increase in hatred towards them. Many figures have actually, have actually corroborated that. That's actually, that's a fact of reported cases. Now, just to clarify, I didn't report what happened to me and I know so many people don't report it because two things. One is that, what are you going to do? How are you going to catch them? I don't have a description or it's over now. And, you know, I escaped with my life this time, you know, let's just move on. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. And it's like, you know, for me, I, I, I really hope that we are being cautious and aware of how we allow certain kinds of language and certain kind of opinions to to um to percolate in 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 society because because as as I said already those ideas and that language is designed to create divisions it's designed to split society and and to and to create fractions and 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 those kind of actions as well so it's not clever um do you find that you, your family members and uh, you have a number of brothers do do they find it difficult to deal with that when they see 
the hatred that uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community are dealing with and obviously yourself? My real answer to that would be, and it kind of connects to what I said about the guards there, I, I wouldn't be telling my family that, oh, that happened. I mean, you know, I don't even think I ever spoke to my parents about my personal thing, although I did mention it in in Panty's film. So I'm actually being interviewed on her film saying this. So, you know, I have talked about it in public, but it's not, it's not, I'm not carrying around the weight of, of, you know, I don't have PTSD over that. I've got too many other traumas to be kind of making space for that. Um, but I do, as I already mentioned when I told my mum I was gay, that she was aware back then of what society was like in her view for a gay person. So the protection there was, was kind of, you know, was, her, the perspective was of concern and, and fear. I think that the way the world has moved and what my mum would would see in the media about me or or generally what Ireland is like for gay people would be way more positive. So I don't think that my family are, are kind of, you know, living in fear from for my life. Um, no, it's not like that. It's, it's just, it's the odd kind of, you know, rogue element just being a bit of a, yeah. You mentioned there that you've dealt with other traumas. Um, I'm guessing maybe one of them may have been the loss of your brother, Kieran, a number yes. of years yes. ago. Um, yes. Can you tell me about that? How What happened and how it impacted you and how you're coping? So, um, I, my mum and dad had three children, three boys. I'm in the middle, like Diana Ross. And um, so my older brother, Aidan's still around. Uh, my younger brother, Kieran, um, he was five years younger than me. Um, in his 30s, developed cancer. He had just been married. Um, life was looking really rosy for him. And then um, just a, a medical problem became a bigger medical problem that turned out to be terminal. And he was given a year to live. And they were actually bang on with that because it was almost a year to the day from his diagnosis. In a way, that kind of really helped for me because even though it's for me, I, I'm specifically saying for me, um, that the, the time it was, you know, the long kind of goodbye. I was able to spend a lot of time with him and watch um, kind of, you know, helplessly, albeit, um, but watch his slow departure. I mean, it was horrible. It's a horrible illness. Um, he, he um, because he was young and healthy, they weren't entirely sure at the very beginning where his, the origin of his cancer was, but it was kind of a bowel cancer that had spread and it had really spread. Um, so, um, you know, he fought, you know, and I hate when people say that, but he, he didn't want to die, obviously. Um, and and that was really hard. It was really hard for me to watch somebody I love go through that. It was really hard for me to watch his wife go through that. It was really hard for me to watch my brother and his family and my parents, most of all, to watch them go through that because that's just unnatural. It's just a really unnatural thing for a parent to watch their child die and... Um, you know, and then afterwards, the aftermath is actually kind of harder then because you kind of have to then deal with, no, I don't mean the, the funeral, I mean the, the life afterwards, the kind of the grief process, which for everybody is individual, it's a different pathway. So people are in different places with it all the time. And, and sometimes, you're, you know, you, you know, I found that I wasn't able to have the conversation that one of my other, you know, grieving um, family members might have wanted to have at that time. Or I found that they weren't on the same kind of page with me as, as I needed them to be at that particular moment. So grieving is a really, it's a, it, it's a shared experience, but it's also an incredibly individual experience. And it's a really hard thing to kind of put into words because you can simultaneously 
be standing in front of the country presenting telly bingo while inside, you know, you're you're a shell of a person, that you're dead, you're on autopilot. And and then later on, you can go, I really want to go out for a drink and be completely happy and have a laugh and be laughing about some nonsense. And then the next minute, you know, because it's, it's, it's not a constant kind of a, a thing. I don't know, like trauma is a very kind of heavy word. And I don't know, I, I mean, obviously it is trauma, but, you know, I don't, I, I think for me, I, I I know that grief is a permanent process. Like it's an ongoing thing. Am I dealing with it now? I'm dealing with it now much better than I was back then. I think part of when that happened had a lot to do with the adjustments I made in my own kind of career as well. It definitely shoved me more towards being an introvert than, than, than I probably was before. Um. Yeah, no, but it is. I, I also, but what's kind of interesting though about when you experience death and you kind of connect with it in that kind of, um, in, in, in that process way where you see the process of grieving and all that kind of stuff, that when other people go through it, you, you're much more able to kind of step up or even just to say the basic things. I think anybody who knows this knows that there are the people who go to funerals and they kind of, know the vibe and they're a bit more comfortable with it and then the people who just find the whole thing kind of cringy and they're kind of in their emotions and they're kind of oh, i don't know what to say i don't oh I, will i go up to him will i not go up to him that kind of thing you know that that's something that you learn when you've been through it you realize that's not an important part of this process just you know just be there and uh, when did kieran pass away how many years ago um it's about uh, 16 years ago maybe a little bit longer after it happens um did it change your perspective on life? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I mean, when he got his diagnosis, uh, I immediately um, changed my perspective on life because up to that point, I had be- like this was this was kind of maybe at the height of my kind of entertainment powers. Like I was having the best life. I was probably earning more money than I ever earned before. I was, you know, I was on the television. I was having, you know, running a successful show. Life was great. You know, I was, you know, I'd just been back from the States where I'd made a documentary. It was, it was all, you know, really great fun for me. And then I went, you know what? This is not important. This is not important to me. My family needs me. I need to be around my family. And, you know, in a way, though, that's not necessarily always the right kind of perspective to have. You know, people think, oh, do you think, you you know, you change your perspective on, on the world? Yeah, but, but sometimes you also have to retain the perspective that life goes on regardless you can't die too because somebody else is like and that's the grief process that's the struggle of kind of wanting the world to stop and knowing that it has to continue and also needing it to continue as well and that that kind of tension is kind of you know trying to find your space your space in that tension is is what that initial phase is all about did it change your faith if you have any or what what yeah how is your how is your religious beliefs changed you know i remember having a chat i remember having a chat with with actually it was with um panty bliss around that time um because coincidentally i don't know if you remember i remember you're way too young but but around that time in the early 2000s there was a kind of a wave of like what they called new atheism and there were these books written by richard dawkins and christopher hutchins and a few other big thinker sam harris i think is one of the other guys they're writing these books about you know it's very much an american phenomenon about you know god isn't real kind of a, kind of a vibe and and i read a lot of books so i just read a few of those and and it had kind of confirmed in me like you know some some kind of philosophical ideas that i hadn't actually considered that i i had um then but then when there was a whole process of um 
of what was going on with my brother happening at the same time. So I remember having a conversation with, with Panty Rory and, and Rory going, are you, are you kind of on this kind of, you know, I don't think that religion is, is a good thing by because of what's happening with your brother. And it, it isn't. I don't think it was. I think it was just a coincidence of those two things happening at the same time. However, what I've now no- noticed in myself is that I've kind of mellowed in this kind of strident kind of atheistic vibe, not because my beliefs have changed, but because I, I, I see that the world is too full of, of kind of strident kind of, um, you know, almost kind of um, ideological perspectives that um, people are entitled to have kind of feelings and entitled to have thoughts. But what I really have a problem with is when those thoughts or those feelings become restrictive for other people, when they're, or even worse, when they become targeted at other people. I feel, you know, if you look at the United States of America, a country that likes to pretend that it's a Christian country, that it presents itself very much as, as that, you know, in certain spheres. Um, yet most of that kind of Christian morality seems to be pointing at other people, making other people not do X, Y and Z while they, you know, cheat on their wives with porn stars or whatever they do. And, you know, so there's a really weird kind of um, cognitive dissonance there. And I see that a lot with religious people is that they kind of want to point at other people. Now, I'm talking about the people who come out and they go on marches and all these people, the people who, who are very vocal about their about their faith. There are dozens and millions of people who who um who have you know a spirituality and a faith who and it's an internal thing for them and it and it, it might guide their actions and i have complete respect for that mm-hmm. but obviously because of well, i suppose the way some religions treat members and their attitudes towards lgbtq plus as well it obviously would i'm guessing have a, an impact on your own beliefs as well uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't believe in I don't believe in God, which is way more uh, um, of a statement than saying I don't believe in, you know, in, in Christianity or I don't believe in Islam or whatever or Judaism. I'm beyond that. I just don't think that the 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 evidence is there that that for me that that God in the way that those um, organizations present the idea of God is real. Now, I do think that there is there are aspects to our universe there are aspects to the development of, of, of the universe and, and, and also of our consciousness that I don't understand. So, you know, it would be very arrogant of me to say that in the absence of understanding those elements that I could then category say that nothing kind of in that area exists. But that would be, it would be a stretch still for me. That would be, that would be like a, wow, I, I didn't expect that one coming as opposed to, you know, that's obviously what the, the, the outcome of any exploration of human consciousness is going to be, the discovery of the kind of the God cell or whatever it is. Because I don't think that's what's going to happen. Tell me briefly, what is one thing that you would change about Ireland and why? Change about Ireland and why? Um, I think Irish people are really, really kind and good people at our core. And I think that's something that we, when we look back into our history, that's something we believe about ourselves. I think we participate in things very well as a society. We, we like the idea of community. We can remember our smaller kind of rural kind of history, you know, as being quite recent. And as a result of that, I think that what we are is, or what we believe we are, is a society that wants to contribute. And I believe that therefore that 
I sound like I'm trying to win Miss USA or something. <laughs> I do, but I do believe humbly that um, contribution into the political sphere is something that I think that should be encouraged um, more on a kind of a on a kind of a policy level. I I do believe that we kind of engender these uh, political dynasties, and I, I would rather we had limited political kind of, you know, you know, you can only be a TD for a set amount of time and then you had to go off and do something else and then somebody else. Like jury service, that it's a kind of a duty of civic, you know, rather than it's a career path that people go in order to gain power and stuff like that. I think that if we did something like that with society, with an eye to what the future needs, um, I think we'd make better policy decisions. That's very interesting. Good idea. Um, and lastly, Declan Buckley, a piece of advice you would give to my next guest. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh gosh. Um, piece of advice to give to your next guest. Um, never drink from an open beaker that doesn't belong to you at a festival. <laughs> you obviously have a story to tell now. No, I'm just thinking what what you know that was like just the first thing that came to my head. Who's your next guest? I don't actually know who, who I put it out. Okay. It could be the pea shook, so Oh yeah, well there you go. How else? Oh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. <laughs> I had lots of fun. Thank you so much, Kira. It's been lovely talking to you. Join me back here next week for another episode on the Kira Feeling podcast. <laughs>